Welcome to Space Floor NBA Podcast. My name is Connor Geelan. And I'm Connor Flannery. And this is our 92nd official episode. We're here today with our first ever interview on the podcast, Jake Fisher, author of Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. Jake, welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys for having me. That was a very nice intro. I'm honored to be the first, so let's, uh, let's get this thing going. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever um, is coming out soon on Amazon. I've already been listening to it on Audible. I would highly recommend it to, to everybody who, uh, who is a fan of our podcast. Um, as a couple of guys, me and Connor Gillen, who will never make the NBA but are interested in, uh, in, in team building and how NBA teams come together, Built to Lose is a, is a really interesting book about the front offices and how basically NBA stat nerds have begun to take over um, front offices and change the way that teams put together their rosters, moving away from the, um, the old idea that you had to be a former NBA player in order to manage a team. Um, so to introduce uh, our man, Jake Fisher, a little bit, he's from just outside Philadelphia, which of course helps inspire the, the Philadelphia 76ers angle that is sort of at the center of built to lose. Um, of course, they're known for the trust, the process and sort of, spearheading the tanking uh the tanking new wave of the in the nba right now now is based in brooklyn of course connor gill and i are, are from new york city so we like the new york representation around here <laughs> graduated from northeastern university he's got even the shirt on so that's exciting um currently an, an nba writer for bleach report but has written for sports illustrated and slam magazine very impressive so go check out jake's jake's other articles in addition to built the lose after this episode. Um, he's also appeared in the Boston, Boston Globe, Washington Post, GQ, ESPN's True Hoop Network, and SB Nation. Uh, Jake, it's really good to have you, like we said. Will you start off by telling us anything about you that we missed, anything that our, that our audience should know, and a little bit about how you became interested in, in, in sports writing and, and uh, got up to this point in your career where you're writing this book and interviewing players and all that? Yeah, I mean, this is honestly what I've always wanted to do. I mean, I, I loved basketball as a kid and played pretty competitively. Um, and I knew I wasn't going to make the league at some point. So kind of at a certain point in high school, I really shifted gears and um, I, I, I quit my basketball team and like dove into becoming a reporter and a journalist. My high school paper was phenomenal. And you know, I started blogging about the team and I ended up landing an internship at Slam my after summer after my freshman year of high school, and just kind of from there, like that summer, 2013 was really when I like started covering the league. Like I feel, I feel like that draft, I was breaking news and you know writing features with interviewing players and talking to the team executives. Like it was happening. So um, from there, I just continued to try to snowball everything and bust my butt and you know, work seven different jobs at once and keep building on top of the things. And eventually, you know, I was at a, at a spot in SI where I wanted to do something more and writing a book and kind of all this reporting really encapsulates a lot of stuff that I've covered throughout my career and people I've gotten to meet along the way. So it just felt like a natural conclusion to the first eight years or so of my, of my reporting life. How was it as you, you describe like with the internship, first of all, freshman year of, of high school, that, freshman that's, year of college, sorry. Freshman year of college, oh, okay. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. okay. I was like, oh freshman my God, this is a prodigy. <laughs> um, 
So can you just dive into a little bit of like, what's it like the first time you're like entering this field, like to sit down and talk to people you've either seen on TV or um, read about in the, in the NBA news world? Um, what's that process like? How do you prep? Um, and what was just the general experience? Yeah, um, I mean, at Slam, like I basically, like they put me in a back corner of the office and said, like, make this what you will. You can do whatever you want. Just like, don't make us look bad. And at the time, it was before draft Twitter, like, really became a thing. Um, like, no one was really covering the draft besides Draft Express. It was still at like, the playoffs until it wasn't. And I just went through the mock drafts and through going click around the internet, like found agents contact information and turns out like agents want their players to get written about before the draft. So you write about those players and then you come across on Twitter or when I go to a team workout with a credential through the magazine that people know that your name from writing something or they'll see you talking to a player and they'll want to know what you know, and they'll give you your info to stay in touch because they can pick your brain. Like it became clear to me, from an early age, I was 19 years old, um, that, you know, what the media's role and what reporters' role can be in this NBA ecosystem. And, you know, today's been a crazy day of news. And I, I mean, I'm looking at my phone now, like a Pelican assistant coach has texted me something like, people want to know what I know because I'm talking to all these people. So it's like only something that you have to like spend a lot of time on and be, persistent and whatever but it's honestly just being a straightforward person and t- treating people like people and just talking to them about the NBA so that's uh that's I guess that's my long answer <laughs> that's a good one I I guess I would to sum it up it, it sounds like networking is your answer like that's that's the that's pretty the key to everything pretty much but there's also like the public nature of all this which is a whole nother dynamic that mm-hmm. is real like I know I'm I I'm writing something about the Pelicans firing Stan Van Gundy. And, you know, I know it's going to be a little critical of David Griffin. And I know David Griffin's probably going to read it and he can call me and, be, and yell at me if he wants. So um, that's like a real aspect of the job as well. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if, if you write that article about David Griffin, David Griffin calls you up and is mad. Does that then hurt your relationship with David Griffin moving forward? Is it, hard to go to the Pelicans with, with information or to ask for anything? Um, it's not hard, but that's part of the job. And it's not uh, an unforeseen variable and, and not something you can work through and work past. Yeah. All right. Well, moving towards built to lose, because that's, that's the real reason that we're having you on is, <laughs> is to promote the new book, sure. talk a little bit about, uh, about it. Um, awesome copies, right? <laughs> Say that again, sorry. Awesome copies, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, so give us, give, us your, give us your sales pitch, a little bit of a summary, a description, why this is the perfect book for, for our audience to go check out. So, I mean, for people who don't know, and even with all the illustrious uh, intro we've done here, um, you know, I'm a reporter through and through, and I, I pride myself on finding new information that people can't get anywhere else. Like, I think that's, uh, that's like, a bit, that's what journalism is like if you don't have anything new you don't have a story so I talked to over 300 people for this book players agents coaches executives other ancillary people around the league and you know it's 320 pages and every single page is loaded with new info like literally information that you're not going to find anywhere else from 
transactional details to like locker room fighting and practice stories and details and scenes on the team bus and the team plane and trade rumors and private pre-draft workouts that haven't been reported before, which I'm sure we'll talk about coming up. But that's my opening speech that like, if you get this book, you're going to find a ton of new NBA stuff that would, if it came out on NBA Twitter at the time, you would have lost your mind. It's all in this book. That's, that's been the part that's really blown me away is like, it's, it's really great storytelling. That's, that's what I would, I would compliment you on the most, Jake, is like, this is events throughout NBA history that I think fans are familiar with, but the, but the stories behind it, the, the behind the scenes of it is really fascinating. Like what, what the player was thinking on the, on the team plane, the moment he found out from his teammate that he got traded or um, that this player's agent didn't really want them to get drafted by the team and was trying to pull strings to avoid that. Um, You know, all kinds of stuff that, that, that there's like more layers to it that, that even, even in the public eye that NBA fans don't really see. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I I say that the NBA, you know, people who don't, um, People always ask me, like my friends, family, whatever, like, what's the NBA like, right? Or what's covering the NBA like? And I always say, you know, it's an ecosystem and a business and a, and a workplace. And a lot of people in mind in that role, they all have their own independent agendas, right? Players want to put themselves in positions to get paid. And sometimes that's just getting playing time to even get paid. And coaches want to be successful with, with their team, but also to the point where they can get a job and keep moving up themselves too. And executives want to keep their jobs and get paid more and everywhere. It's a business. And when those, when those agendas don't line up, I mean, I'd say the NBA is 99% of it is not basketball 48 and zero between 48 and zero on the clock. That's just like a small microcosm of what the league is at large. And those are the types of stories that I want to really humanize and, and characterize and tell in a narrative structure, like you're reading a novel. Yeah, that, that's really interesting from what you say. It strikes me that in the NBA, outside of 48 to zero, a lot of it is people trying to keep their jobs mm-hmm. rather than trying to do their jobs. That's um, true. And I, I think it's because, you know, everyone wants to work in sports. So uh, the the job like is either you don't get paid as much as uh, you possibly could, or you work really long hours because there are a bunch of people willing to do that job. Um, how, like interviewing all these people, did, can you talk a little bit more about the kind of overall, like vibe is a very nondescript word, but either vibe or like the, the culture of like day-to-day interactions at like a front office or uh, anything outside of the locker room? So I typically see teams on the road, um, I visit teams at home too, but typically it's you have your morning shoot around and then you go back to your room and do your own thing. Some some guys get treatment. Some guys, um, you know, want to work on something else in particular. Other guys watch film or play video games, whatever. And the front office is kind of like in the office and running over projects, like checking out, doing studies and watching film and evaluating whatever the tracking data from the night before. And you got video coordinators who are breaking down the film and cutting up film from other teams scouting. Um, and the, it's all kind of out happening at once. Like, like just like a company has a PR department and a human resources department and uh, whatever, like they're all functioning 
at once. They, they, they overlap at those meetings where you think they would, like at practice, at shoot around, at the game. Um, and it's kind of really just like a traveling office on the road when, when those guys are doing that. One question I got for you is, is what do you think has changed the most since that summer after your freshman year of college, when you started covering the NBA, um, whether it be something that you talk about in, in built to lose or not, what, what sort of trends have you noticed in, in what's been the, the thing that's most different since when you first got into uh, covering the league? Um, I think the league is in a precarious place where the narrative of things is so dominant and that's partially due to social media and how streamlined the conversation can be with fans. And I think, you know, when news comes out, you know, usually it has, it's coming out for a particular reason, but not all the time. So that's also been an issue where, you know, I'll write a story or someone else will write a story and they'll say, oh, well, these people are obviously leaking it because of this. And sometimes that's not true. So it's in a weird spot where the league has become such like a Hollywood type entity where people are trying to spread information to paint a narrative and know the narrative is going to get painted anyway. So they're just going to try to control as much as they can. And that's been both good for the popularity, but I think bad for the overall product and that it's created just this shitstorm. if I'm allowed to curse. Um, that just like, you know, the, the Pandora's box has been opened, if you will. Yeah. So, so moving back and, and sort of moving forward with, with this whole, whole built to lose idea, I think one of the things that, that is so interesting to, to this, for, about this book for me is, is as you talk about this idea of tanking and, and the, and one of the, the premier ways of, of building a team over the last decade has been losing on purpose to get draft picks primarily through the lens of the Philadelphia 76ers. Of course, Sam Hankey in, in the trust the process, they drafted Joe Embiid and Ben Simmons and Jalil Okafor, who you talk a lot about uh, in built to lose, but of course he never panned out the same way that, that Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid have. I'd like to sort of move into comparing and contrasting some of the different ways to build the team, which uh, to build a team, which ways work the best, particularly through the lens of, today's contenders. So we can, we can start with the Philadelphia 76ers. If you would give us a little bit of, of the backstory of the background, we can chime in. Um, how did the Philadelphia 76ers as sort of the, the, the prime example of this built to lose get to being the best team in the Eastern conference to looking like against the Atlanta Hawks, they could move on to the Eastern conference finals next in the next round over the next few games. Uh, what about, let's start with the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, yeah, you hit, you hit the nail on the head. I think the book, I call it, you know, an anecdotal case study of a bunch of different abstracts of the same idea. So Philly was, you know, the most brazen, bald, you know, truly cutting to the most bare minimum margins of the roster and, and, and scraping, towing the line as much as you can to following the rules or what's, what's uh, allowable within the rules. Boston, they move on from a contender. They trade KG and Paul Pierce, which obviously is a better starting point than a team like Philly. But then you also have the small markets like Orlando who know that their impending free agent wants to go elsewhere. So they trade him ahead of time and you have Phoenix who they do the same thing. It wasn't really Nash. I mean, Nash wasn't the title contender, but, and that team had already really moved on, but you know, they signed and trade Nash away to the Lakers 
And the Lakers are the other example where they were the worst managed team in this period we're talking about, 2012 to 2017. They were the they had the worst record in that five year span. But the Lakers being the Lakers, they have a much larger margin for error than other teams, and they can be the worst team for five years. And LeBron will still come sign with them in free agency. And then Anthony Davis will request a trade and then win the title in 2020. All these other teams that don't that aren't that free agent destination. I mean, even until Boston did this rebuild and signed Al Horford and, and Gordon Hayward, they were not considered really a free agent destination. The Celtics were not. They're not the Patriots or the Red Sox. Now that's that's kind of shifted a little bit. Philly too. That's why they traded for Andrew Bynum to begin with, which obviously started the whole process really in Philadelphia anyway. So all these other teams realized to compend, to really contend for a title, you need you need multiple all stars. And the most direct route to get them, if you're not LA or New York or whatever, is at the top of the draft. So I think it all, con- all also coincided with that 2014 class being considered to be the best draft since 2003. And who was in the 03 class? LeBron, Wade, and Bosch, who were running the league with Miami, who no one was going to beat them anyway. So all those compounding factors really opened up why those different types of teams wanted to press the button and start a real rebuild. And, and so, so what do you, what would you say is like, it, I, I guess it sounds to me like you're saying there's sort of a, there's multiple different factors that lead to this built to lose mentality. Um, first is, is these super teams, right? So the, the Miami heat, um, the LA Lakers, when they had uh, Kobe, Steve Nash, Dwight Howard, even though they didn't like, and Pau Gasol, even though they didn't really work, work out, you have these multiple all-star teams coming together and the idea that they're sort of unbeatable so you might as well you might as well tank and then also the idea that there are good drafts upcoming would you say those are the two the two big factors that led to this like shift towards tanking absolutely it was the rise of all these analytical minded guys who mm-hmm. leading back to Daryl Moore and Sam Presti and Daryl even descends from Boston too right and and they're obviously a big factor in this equation as well um so you know the, the data backed up what history really says in the eye test that all these teams dating back to the Celtics in the fifties. And it's been forward to Bob Pettit's Hawks and the Celtics and the Lakers in the eighties and Jordan's bulls and the heat and the Spurs and the Lakers pretty traditionally outside of a couple of random teams, like those Pistons and Dirk's Mavericks, even though Dirk's Mavericks had a bunch of former all-stars too. Like most title teams are comprised of multiple all-stars and it's also the most efficient way to get them is through the draft. So if you want to trade for them or sign them in for agency, it's far easier to do so when you have them already. Look at Dwayne Wade bringing LeBron and, you know, Bosch with them or spin it forward to the Suns draft and Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. And now they trade for Chris Paul with no worry that he's not going to resign there. So that's, that's kind of the, the real whole all encompassing calculus. To, to use a contemporary example, uh, Seaflin and I last night went to game five uh, of the right. the Nets versus Milwaukee Bucks. Um, first of all, insane, Kevin Durant, mind-boggling. But you see, those are, in my opinion, the two best teams in the East, period. Um, and one was built in an offseason um, and is maybe going to win the series, maybe will win the finals in the Brooklyn Nets, three all-stars, signed two of them the same year and then traded for a third um, when James Harden like forced his way out. So they got him arguably for a discount. And the, on the other hand, you have the Bucks who drafted Giannis. They 
didn't draft Chris Middleton, but they've had him for years. Um, that's more of like, a, like the grassroots movement. And you see that one, one, the team with the superstars that they trade for, they play, they play in Brooklyn and the other team plays Milwaukee. And that's like the fifth largest market versus the fifth smallest market. Um, yeah. I don't think one is necessarily better than the other in the absolute that like, Oh, because they drafted the players, then they're going to win. But you know, one there, I think those are the two most efficient ways. Here's the thing, no matter what way you're building your team, any strategy, any type of roster construction you have in mind, you're ultimately going to run into unforeseen variables and luck is going to play a big factor. Look at what's ha- just happened to all these teams in the playoffs. Kawhi Leonard, ACL, Jamal Murray, like Tim Connolly has done arguably the best job in the NBA over the last half decade plus, And he gets Jokic and Michael Porter and Jamal Murray all, you know, Murray was picked seventh and the other complimentary guys, Monty Morris. And then they, you know, bring in this trade for Aaron Gordon and then Jamal Murray tears his ACL. So I think what a lot of these, why why tanking is more attractive to a lot of the the more numbers centered people is that that mitigates your odds a lot more than, the other route like if you can get multiple all-stars if one of them does get hurt if one of them does decide to request a trade you can still continue to be a contender and like the goal i think is not to win the championship the goal is to put yourself truly in that championship conversation not even conversation but like actual real legitimate contention like there's only a couple teams that can win it every year so if you can be one of those teams for a decade and the odds are you're going to break through through a couple of years and you're going to, when other teams aren't lucky or you are, are lucky, then you stack the odds in your favor to take advantage of the situation. So I, I guess, I guess in hindsight, given that the, the Sixers who have, who are the sort of like uh, the tanking example are now matched up uh, are, are, are sort of competing for the championship with, with teams like the Nets that, we're sort of on the wrong side of these last five, like this five-year period from 2012, 2017 that you're talking about after they traded KG and Paul Pierce. Um, and now they've turned it around just by signing a couple of, uh, you know, a, a few of the, a few of the best players in the NBA and trading for James Harden. Um, you have the Utah jazz who I think on the roster, don't have a single player that they took with their own pick. They have a couple guys they've traded for on draft night. Um, and the NBA has now changed the rules so that um, your odds of, of landing the top pick, even as the worst team in the NBA, are, are significantly lower. I, so I, I guess my question is, is in hindsight or, you know, a few years removed from the, the I guess, what was the height of tanking, do you think that, uh, that general managers around the league, the front offices, are going to continue to utilize tanking as, as like the go-to for small markets in, in, in developing a championship contender? Or is that popularity going to sort of fall off as, as I think the league seems to be fighting against it? Yeah, I mean, listen, the book is called Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. And it changed the league forever in instituting lottery reform to down to 14% instead of 25 But it also played a huge factor in this plan tournament that, that we saw this year. And it will continue to play a factor in their further conversations of having a midseason tournament because if there's games involved in the midseason tournament that count towards the team's total of 82, then that will then create less sample size for teams to fall out of the postseason equation. And if you have that play-in tournament in the back end, 
it will continue to force teams to think they've got a shot. But look at this 2021 class. This draft is considered to be the best class since 14, ironically, the one that we talk about in the book, right? Yeah. And we saw OKC, the second Shea Gildas Alexander hurts his ankle. He's out for the rest of the year. He's not even playing for Team Canada this summer. Al Horford, he just gets to pack up and go home. John Wall takes his spot on Houston's bench, and Kevin Porter Jr. takes over the starting role. The Pistons wave Blake Griffin. He's you know obviously playing a big contributing role to Brooklyn right now. And you know Orlando, even after trading those three guys away, they sat Terrence Ross the rest of the year. Like Terrence Ross isn't winning or losing you a ton of games, right? But they still took the measure to rest him, even though he had a little, he had like a little injury. Hinky was never doing that in Philly. If he's the most brazen example, he wasn't sending guys home half the year. I think as long as your draft positioning is dependent on your record, we're still going to see teams lose games on purpose because there still is a benefit. Like the Rockets were the worst team in the league, and this is considered a five-year draft. Sure, they only have a 14% chance at number one, but then their odds continue to go up at two and three and four, and they're guaranteed the fifth pick because that's when that you still slate the teams from five through 14 based on order. So on a five player draft, like this is considered to be the, the Rockets are sitting pretty. So there's definitely going to be benefits still to tanking no matter what. Yeah. I, I see that we, that sentiment manifests in the past like five years that the standings themselves are more polarized than ever before. Like it, it, there's such a, big gap between the six seed and like the the 12 seed whereas i feel like in a normal year there's a gap but now all of a sudden the six seed is is, is a team like the heat or the celtics or, or a team that has two all-stars at least and then yeah. the 12 seed would have been the worst team in the league like six years ago or whatever um yeah i mean i there's not down to interrupt you just real quick i mean the league's got i think the most talent ever i really do yeah i agree i think Bill Simmons, and I know, Seaflin, you talked about this, like, I think Bill Simmons said that there are dozens upon dozens of guys in the NBA that could score 20 points a game if you just gave them the keys and the green light, um, which I think is a testament to the amount of talent that's in the NBA. Um, and the same thing of, like, you're, you're really benching Terrence Ross, who's, like, if he was on a playoff team, he might not start, but he could just randomly, he actually, he has a, Terrence Ross in particular has a 50 point game, um, yeah. but just, yeah, but the, the talent in the NBA is just so deep that even like the, the mid guys could win you a few extra games. For sure. So I guess the question I have for the two of you is if your name is Sam Presti or, or now Brad Stevens or whatever other NBA GM, um, in your team is, I mean, I guess those guys aren't, aren't the best example are, you know, Brad Stevens is the best example because the Boston, Boston Celtics can now sign free agents as we were talking about, but, but Sam mm-hmm. Presti, let's say, um, do, do you use tanking moving forward or, or do you, uh, do you avoid it? Is it, is it still worth it? Um, I mean, Boss. to me, I think, you know, a lot of people would always ask me, do I think Sam's going to come back in the league and Sam Hinky, not Sam Presti. And, you know, he probably would need another rebound situation. Right. And to that answer, I would always say, no, like, I don't think Sam was steadfast. And that was the only way to build a team. It just looked mm-hmm. like from Philly's starting point, they had 
they're, they, they, have, they have limited future draft capital at all. They, they were owing picks to teams. Um, so he, th- he saw the opportunity to use Drew to restock that cupboard and build a team that wasn't just going to be a, a, a mid-tier team. But if you're taking over the Pelicans with Zion Williamson, right, like you're not tanking. You're trying to – I mean, they haven't made the playoffs yet, but they're trying to make the playoffs. If you're coming into power like Minnesota with Gerson Rosas, but you already have Carl Anthony Towns, like sure, they haven't been good either, but their goal was to make a winner too. So I don't think necessarily it's a one-size-fits-all tanking is the best way. But whenever you do realize that your current group has maximized its potential and that potential is not winning a title, then yes, I think the immediate answer is we need to strip this cupboard bare as quickly as possible while before all these players' values depreciate, not to think about it too crudely, and you know start this rebuild in earnest. I do think that is a one-size-fits-all moment for sure. And so, so what's a team around the league that you think fits that mold that should be stripping their roster and starting the rebuild, but that, that hasn't done that yet? Oh boy. Well, I never want to tell a team to do anything. Um, I don't really like to even give these opinions, but uh, I don't know. I no mean, pressure then. No pressure. I mean, I think the Wizards are, are, are in a situation where Bradley Beal still wants to be there from all accounts, everything I've heard. And, you know, if that's true, then – they're, they're building something closely, but I think, uh, I mean, they've got these young guys. If they don't, if they don't maximize this team next year, like if they can't really grow this thing into, uh, I mean, they obviously just got rid of Scott Brooks earlier today. So, you know, if they can, if they can bring in someone who can really maximize this unit and develop these younger guys at the same time, you know, maybe, maybe the wizards are moving in the right direction. You could, you could see that. Um, but also maybe they're not. And maybe this group is just a first round exit. And by this time next season, the Wizards might have to look in the mirror and pull the trigger. One team that always comes to mind, uh, sort of in relation to that for me is, is the Trailblazers. Because I think for a long time they've been, or for at least for a handful of years now, they've been a team that's pushing past the first round, but, but feels like they can't get farther than that and, and also aren't going to slip down past that. So if, if they, they so they can't really hit the full the full tank that we've been talking about and uh and 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 get into those like top of the draft positions but they also can't really compete for the title because i think as good as the trailblazers have been i don't think they've ever been considered by nba fans to be like in this in the top tier of contenders uh, yeah. they're they're one for me that it's like it might be time to start considering something else you know they just they just got rid of of, of terry stotts but um is coaching change all they're going to do this offseason? I, I think that's something that's interesting. Does does one of CJ or Dame have to go to because that's all that's been a conversation over the last few years that you know the Trailblazers haven't really fed into, but that NBA fans have been having. Yeah, I mean, Damian Lillard's one of the best players in the league, and whenever you have a player like that, you can see like the certain nights where he goes off for fifty against Denver. That you know that 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 one player, and that's why tanking I think is so prevalent too in the NBA versus other sports. One singular player can do so much for your team. Yeah, with ten guys on the court, and um, there's only five guys on one side, right? So like that just just that that sheer you know oppor- potential opportunity, potential energy, if you will, is so much greater than even the quarterback in the NFL. So um, with with the Blazers having a guy like that, like the pressure is always going to be on. And I think this is the summer they're really going to start to look at moving CJ McCollum. I really do think I, if I had to bet, I would guess that CJ McCollum is in a different team this year. I really would. 
Um, I don't, I don't know if it will happen for sure, but my educated guess is that they're, they're, they would probably look to move him versus keep him. So the question at this point just is what's out there. And that's, that's obviously, that's always why that's the, the obvious um, inertia against any type of situation, right? Like you can want to trade your guy, but a, you have to get a package back that you would like and B is it worth it? Wow. I think, uh, Another thing with the, with the trailblazers and, and just in general for me that like, yes, of course you need to get that one guy that's a top 10 player in the league because that's the easiest way to a championship. But one thing that drives me crazy is like, like everyone has a, has a problem with like, Oh, he's overpaid. But I think that playing payers or paying players what they're worth or even under that, but what they're worth, like does works miracles because one overpaid contract can also sink your ship, right? Like we were talking about like the 76ers were great last year, but like, yeah, I would, I would say even now, like I don't think the 76ers can win a ring when Tobias Harris is on the roster because he's, he's just taking up too much of the cap. Like with the, with the trailblazers for years and years, they couldn't make a move because they're paying their wing players like 15, $20 million a year. Um, and, and, you can see that if you have a superstar player, just a player that you're not paying a third of your team's salary to, like the Warriors in like 2016, they were paying Steph Curry like $14 million. Um, that that puts you over the hump just in the same way that almost adding a third all-star would. Yeah, I, I think the, I mean, the big talk with Brooklyn adding those two, adding James Harden was – as we're seeing pop up, as we talked about, you know, if one star goes down, if you're the Lakers and Anthony Davis goes down, you're screwed. If you've got three and one of them goes down, you got two. It's honestly sometimes just as simple as that. And, you know, what we're obviously the Rockets value these guys differently too, but what were Karis Levert and, Spen- and uh, uh, Jared Allen really going to be contributing collectively more so than what James Harden could to compete for the title, right? Like, obviously, Jared Allen is a really good young center. I'm very high on. I'm a big believer in him. I think he'll get paid a pretty big contract extension in Cleveland. And I love Karis LeVert, too. I think he's a future all-star. But right now, your title window is now. James Harden is different. And he's also someone that probably um, is good enough to – and is – that is age that is game will age well and to the point where by the time Karis Levert might reach it might even sniff James Harden's level he might be ready to go get his own big contract too so I think all those factors when you think about also where their picks are going to be all these these four first round picks they traded if they're in the 20s do they really give up that much for James Harden not really so I think uh all that combined is like is the, is why three is greater than two, pretty much. I got the jersey on right now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's it's definitely difficult to manage because we've been talking a lot about how you need multiple all stars to to win a championship in today's NBA, but it's difficult to pay multiple all stars uh, under under the NBA salary cap, which of course is more stringent than some of the other like North American sports leagues, but. I guess just just to wrap up, the last question I want to throw at you, Jake, is will the 2021 NBA draft class uh, surpass the 2014 draft class? Is the hype that it's going that it's getting deserved? Are these guys future, you know, NBA championship first option caliber guys? 
Um, it's difficult to say, and that's why the draft is difficult and why it's ultimately you know, a game of chance and luck too. As much as you can put in all this intel and insight and, and work out these guys and interview them, like ultimately you're wrong a lot of the time. Um, I think as someone who, you know, might have the highest ceiling of pretty much anyone outside of Joel Embiid in 2014, even comparatively so, but Wiggins was talked about as the next LeBron and Jabari Park was talked about as the next Carmelo and Julius Randle was the next Zebo and maybe Julius Randle worked out, you know, so um, and Marcus Smart is what he is. And Aaron Gordon, you know, looked like a pretty solid playoff contributor this year. So I don't know. If, if, I don't think Evan Mobley is like a guaranteed guy more than any of those guys were. And I don't think Cade Cunningham is any more guaranteed than what Jabari Parker and Andrew Wiggins were. Uh, maybe he is. Maybe he is a little bit above those guys. Um, but I don't know. I, I think to say it's definitely going to be better is difficult. But I think 20 – 14 had a larger crop. So based off of this whole theme of this conversation, I'm going to take the one that gives me a larger margin for error. I'm going to take 2014. <laughs> All right. That's interesting. I, I, I think it's fascinating that, that teams can, can miss on draft picks and, and still be in, in contending situations. Like I said, at the beginning of the episode, like we talk about the Sixers tanking for uh, tanking, taking to the top of the NBA standings. And yet they had a third overall pick in, in Joel Okafor that is no longer on this roster. So, you know, it, it's, it's interesting how, how, the, how the league works out in, in ways like that. But uh, unless you guys have any final thoughts, that's, that's all I've got. Yeah. I, uh... My last thought would be – oh, sorry, you go. Yeah, you know, you go. Oh, you go. My last thought would be we didn't really get to – talk too much in terms of the, the, the stories um so I'll, I'll leave you guys with this one last story you know talking about unforeseen things and whatnot like philly really thought about taking dante x in number three in 2014 and um his father played for brett brown in australia cecil and you know it's very rare to get a, a prospect one-on-one -on -one in a workout usually it's one on zero against some coaches against a chair the famous story with darko milicic but philly handed um a list of players to Rob Polinka, who was Dante X's agent at the time and said, pick one of these guys we've already worked out against. We want to see him against somebody. So they chose Tim Frazier, the Penn state point guard. Um, and Tim Frazier beat the crap out of Dante X on one-on-one. -on -one, and that really put it, you know, Dante X off the Sixers radar for not even number three, he probably wouldn't have gotten to them at 10 where they ultimately took Alfred Payton and swapped him for Dario Sarge, but they weren't even going to take him at 10. And that's how bad he was in that workout. So you know, maybe if Dante Exum does well or Palenka picks a different name and Exum beats that guy, you know, maybe Philly doesn't take Dante Exum or doesn't take Joel Embiid, they take Dante Exum. So that's the kind of stuff that, you know, ultimately a lot of this comes down to luck and chance and trying to mitigate, you know, all those different factors when you are making these decisions. So if you want more stories like that, Built to Lose, how the NBA's tank air, change the league forever, available on Amazon, bookshop.org if you want to support a local bookseller, Barnes & Noble, I publish Triumph Books. I've got a partnership with a watch company called La Terrain, L-A-T-O-U-R-A-I-N-E. If you want to buy a watch, it's a free book. Um, and thank you guys for having me on. This was a blast and appreciate you giving me the time and the platform. 
Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Space Farm Baby Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Uh, we're available on YouTube, so subscribe and like this video. And we're also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so much. My name is Connor Gielen. And I'm Connor Flannery. And see you next time. Peace. Shout out to uh, Sam Henke. Rest in peace. Shout out <laughs> one more time to Bill Toulouse and Jake Fisher. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, guys.